Hello, you're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. In last week's episode, we covered the early years of Alexander the Great, and left off with the assassination of Philip II in the fall of 336, leaving Alexander undisputed king of Macedonia, primed to invade the Persian Empire and carry the torch of Greek culture with him. He was only 20 years old. But could it have been really that easy, even for Alexander? Well, no. It seems that Alexander needed to take care of some business in his own backyard before he left the neighborhood. If there's one thing we can learn from politics, it's that they are messy. Ancient politics even more so. The death of Philip did not automatically transfer authority to Alexander, despite being the principal heir and effective standing regent of Macedonia. Phil's murderer, Pausanias, was dead, but he was not likely a lone wolf. There also were other contenders to the throne, so it is understandable that Alexander was going to have to break a few eggs in order to secure the kingship. Alex immediately took a preemptive strike against the other possible rivals, his cousin Amintas III, son of Philip's older brother and previous king. There was the family of one Alexander of Lincestis, who himself narrowly avoided the execution block because he was the first to hail Alex as king before Philip's body was cold. Alex's half-brother Caranus was also slain, Surprisingly, though, Philip Aridaeus was not touched, which can also be unsurprising and gives indication of how little of a threat Aridaeus actually was, especially with a moniker like Halfwit. Now that things were solved in the immediate interior of Macedonia, Alexander, acutely aware that the Greeks were not happy as a whole being under Macedonian overlordship, turned his attention southwards. Demosthenes of Athens, the talented orator and anti-Macedonian firebrand beckoned his fellow Greeks to rejoice at the death of the tyrant Philip, calling for posthumous honors to be given to Pausanias, and even showed up to a public celebration in full party gear, despite the death of his daughter only a few days prior. Generous payments of Persian gold by the great king also helped motivate Demosthenes into pushing for open revolts against the Macedonian barbarians. This disrespect towards Alexander was not to last for long. For later that fall, Alexander marched down the peninsula. He coerced the cities of Greece into accepting his rule. Some, like the Thessalians, were easily coaxed through diplomacy and friendly relations, while some, like Thebes, needed a bit of reinforcement with a display of arms. Even Demosthenes was kowtowed at the arrival of Alex, and was a part of an Athenian envoy to apologize for the apparent mix-up though Demosthenes, fearful for his own skin given the years of anti-Philip and Alexander rhetoric, wisely turned back before meeting the king. Alexander received these envoys with courtesy, and then headed to Corinth, where he reaffirmed his position as hegemon of the League of Corinth, which was accepted by all Hellenes except for Sparta. With things now cooled down in Greece, Alex had to head back to Macedonia, The tribes of the Balkans, previously subdued by Philip years prior, had revolted. Alexander could not afford to march on Persia with an unchecked group of barbarians at Macedonia's borders. So, in the early spring of 335, Alexander began his campaigns in the Balkans. He first marched into Thrace, east of Macedonia, where he encountered the Thracian tribe of the Triboloi and their king, Sirmos who had troops holed up in a fortified pass on Mount Hamus. The trouble of trying to defeat an opponent with the high ground was compounded by the fact that this was the only path forward. 
and the Tripolonians lined a barrier with wagons, preparing to send them hurtling down the slope towards any incoming enemy. Alexander ordered his phalangites to split into columns wide enough to let the wagons pass, and those who had no room to move were made to lie down with their shields facing upwards, sending the wagons flying over their heads with no harm done to the troops. The army managed to eventually overwhelm the Thracians, who were cut down to a man, and enslaved any residing women and children. King Sirmos, upon getting word of his advanced guard's defeat, had his civilians flee to a local island in the Danube River. He met Alexander's forces in a pitched battle, and resisted bravely, but thanks to a Macedonian cavalry charge led by Philotas, son of Parmenion, the Tripoli were repelled, and 3,000 Thracians were killed at the expense of only a few Macedonians. Arriving just short of the defeat of the Tripoli, the tribe of the Gitai and their thousands of troops amassed on the other side of the Danube originally to support King Sirmos. Alexander, finding the idea of crossing the most daunting river in Europe to be especially tantalizing, ordered his men to make canoe-like vessels out of hollow trees and use the skin of their nets stuffed with hay to ferry his men across the river in the cover of night. When the Gitai arose the next morning, they suddenly found thousands of Macedonian troops on their side of the river, and they were utterly blown away at the audacity of it, and fled before the first cavalry charge. Alexander managed to find their empty city and plundered it, and, being a pious king, he made sure to offer his proper sacrifices of booty both to the gods and to the river Danube itself. Resting for a bit, Alexander met with envoys of local chieftains and tribes, Sirmos offered his surrender, which Alex accepted, and he even met with a delegation of Celtic ambassadors from further west, who apparently weren't impressed by the Basileos, much to the annoyance of Alex, who scoffed that the Celts were some big talkers. Alexander then continued his operations in Europe, seeking to target tribal Illyrians who were in revolt along the western border of Macedonia. Securing an alliance with the Agrianian king Lingaros, he marched upon the city of Pelion, which was occupied by one King Clytos of the Ortariatai. While planning to siege the city, Alexander was given news that the King Glaucius of the Talantians had arrived to reinforce Clytos. Sensing that this siege would take longer than expected, he ordered Philotus to take charge of a cavalry division to gather provisions. But Glaucius uncovered the plan, and attempted to ambush the foraging party. Alexander came to the rescue but was still left with the prospects of being stuck between two armies. Deciding to take a more bold approach, Alexander ordered his phalangites to ready battle formations, and he led his troops towards the Talantians. But instead of immediately attacking, the phalangites were then ordered to give an impressive display of marching drills. I gave the description of this feat in my previous episode about the Macedonian military, but needless to say, it must have left the non-professional Illyrian tribesmen completely dumbfounded. And at the peak of this display, Alexander ordered a charge and completely terrified the Talantians, who fled the battlefield in disgrace towards the city. With that problem solved, Alexander arranged for a column of shield-bearers, allied Agrianians, and ranged troops to attempt a night raid on the Talantian camp. Crossing the river at night, the Macedonians slew many of the Illyrians in their beds, enslaved any captured troops, and scattered the survivors to the mountains. The problem of besieging Pelion was solved for Alexander by King Clytos, because he burned down the city himself. 
Whether this was a scorched earth policy or just pure spite, I don't have the answer. But then Clytos fled to the surviving Talantians and then sought refuge. During all of this campaigning throughout the spring of 335, tensions in Greece were reaching a fever pitch. After hearing rumors that Alexander had been swallowed into northern Europe by barbarians unknown, the Thebans incited a rebellion, spurred on by, who else, Demosthenes, under the name of autonomy and freedom, and managed to slaughter the Macedonian garrison at Thebes. Understandably furious, Alexander immediately halted his pursuit of Clycos and Glaucius, and then wheeled back down to Greece, quipping, quote, Demosthenes called me a boy when I was in Illyria, a youth when I was marching in Thessaly. I will show him I am a man at the walls of Athens. While Alexander was on the march, the Thebans managed to shore up some additional defenses, while Demosthenes arranged a shipment of weapons to be sent to arm the citizens. Troops of other cities began to move out, but none were too quick to get to Thebes, preferring to watch to see what would happen next. And with remarkable speed, Alexander reached the city walls of Thebes in the summer of 335. After managing to peacefully talk down the Thessalians and Athenians, he had to deal with the remaining rebellious forces of Thebes. Now, this next scene is heavily split among the sources, and I will try to best relay something coherent. Alexander had attempted to reason with the Thebans inside the city, offering them forgiveness if they lay down their arms and submit. Both Plutarch and Diodorus say that the Theban leadership rebuked Alexander's offer, insultingly demanding the surrender of the generals Philotus and Antipater, and beckoned their fellow Greeks to join the great king of Persia in defeating the Macedonian tyrants. Alexander then flew into a fury and called for the destruction of Thebes. Arian, on the other hand, suggests that Alexander was more diplomatic, only attacking them when some of his forces were being slain by Theban scouting parties, nearly killing his general Perdiccas in the process. The Thebans resisted the Macedonians bravely, fighting furiously as Alexander's forces broke into the city by scaling the walls or breaking through the gates. The slaughter was indiscriminate and terrible. Our sources clash on whether Alexander was directly responsible. Arian claims that the troops of other city-states, such as Boeotians and Plataeans, seeking revenge for years of chafing under Theban hegemony, ignored Alexander's orders to spare the civilians. Diodorus and Plutarch tell of a killing incited by the Macedonian troops, and Alexander deliberately ordering it, calling them traitors and claiming retribution for the sacrileges committed by Thebes during the sacred wars of the previous fifty years, and Thebes' complicity in joining the forces of the Persian invasion in Greece. Now, whoever the blame may belong to, Thebes was razed to the ground and plundered. At least 6,000 Thebans were killed, and 30,000 men, women, and children were captured and sold into slavery. The house of the poet Pindar was kept intact, due to the respect Alexander had for the artist's works. Perhaps as a counterbalance, Plutarch relays the story of one Timocleia, a Theban noblewoman who was raped by Thracian troops and managed to kill her rapist. Brought before Alexander for execution, Alex expressed admiration for the woman's noble status and dignity, allowing her and her children to be escorted safely out of Thebes. In my opinion, 
I think that the act of raising the city was certainly a calculated move on Alexander's part. The prospect of leaving a continuously rebellious city such as Thebes in temperamental Greece while marching off into Asia would not be wise. And Alexander has displayed clemency multiple times prior to many of the previous city-states he encountered. Rebellion was treasonous, and Alex was as good as his father in using propaganda to show himself as pious and totally dedicated to defending the idea of Greek freedom from the Persian threat, however sincere he may have been. The act was brutal, but par for the course in the rules of ancient warfare, and it was effective, leaving the Greek world utterly shocked and willing to submit to Alex's rule. Alexander, still furious with Athens, demanded the surrender of ten main anti-Macedonian politicians, and especially Demosthenes. Terrified, the figureheads asked Demades, a guest friend of Alexander, to try and bargain with the Basileos in order to spare these men, even offering to pay the rather pricey sum of five talents of silver. To this request, Alexander relented, and let the Phoenicians remain. Feeling that the situation in Greece and the Balkans was finally under control, Alex took some well-needed R&R by celebrating the Olympic Games at Agiae in the fall of 335. Before he returned home, Alexander reportedly made a pit stop in Corinth, perhaps in order to meet the famous Cynic philosopher Diogenes. For those unfamiliar with Diogenes, this was a philosopher who liked to live in a large terracotta container never bathed, slept with dogs, and liked to spend his time disrupting the lectures of the philosopher Plato. As bizarre as it may seem, Alexander was greatly excited when he came upon the napping cynic. Asking the philosopher if there was anything he could do for him, Diogenes requested it for Alex to stop blocking his sunlight. Amused, Alex responded, If I were not Alexander, I would be Diogenes. A pretty high compliment coming from somebody like Alexander. But, ever the king of banter, Diogenes replied, If I were not Diogenes, I would still be Diogenes. After his little visit to Corinth, Alexander also took a stop at the Temple of Apollo at Delphi in order to consult the famed oracle about his upcoming invasion of Persia. Unfortunately, it seems that he came at the wrong time, choosing a day when the oracle was technically not allowed to give any advice. Alexander being Alexander, he disregarded this notion, and pestered the prophetess to the point of dragging her out by force to the chamber. Probably out of irritation, she cried out, You are invincible, my son! And Alexander was delighted, refusing to hear any other prophecies besides hers. This visit to the oracle is one of a repeating pattern of many pilgrimages that Alexander makes in order to validate his sense of glorious destiny and his possible divinity. He will also make a similar journey to the famed oracle at Siwa in the Egyptian desert. Still, ever restless, Alexander spent much time at home planning his invasion of the Persian Empire. Advisors such as Antipater and Parmenion pleaded with Alexander to take a wife and sire an heir before he ventured out into the great unknown. Alexander tersely responded that he would not sit at home to wait for a child instead of conquering Asia. In the spring of 334, Alexander began his initial steps in the invasion of Persia at Amphipolis. The size of his infantry forces numbered somewhere around 30,000, 
6,000 of those being Macedonians, several thousand Greek mercenaries, Illyrians, and Thracian tribesmen, and various archers. The cavalry amounted to not much more than 4,400 horsemen. The king had enough supplies for the army for 30 days, and he was deep in the black for a whopping 200 talents of silver. Alexander was going to be betting everything on this expedition, and he needed to conquer in order to survive. In Macedonia, he had divided his property among his friends and trusted advisors, leaving Antipater in charge. When asked what, if anything, did Alexander leave for himself, the king replied, My hopes. Alexander crossed the Hellespont, leaving the transportation of most of the troops to the direction of Parminian, in over 120 trireme ships. Alexander inaugurated the crossing by chucking a spear into the soil of Asia from his boat, claiming that he will take all of it by arms, and set up two monuments, one on the European and one on the Asian side. Upon reaching the famed city of Troy, by this point the equivalent of a tourist trap, Alexander made a number of sacrifices and offerings to Zeus and Heracles, the Temple of Athena was given a suit of armor to trade for weapons and armor alleged to have been from the Trojan War itself. And I bet the priestesses at the temple didn't really want to tell Alex that he probably just got a crummy old sword repurposed into a mythical weapon. Seems that times never change. But just to be on the safe side, he even offered sacrifices to appease the spirit of King Priam, the former ruler of Troy, who was killed by Neoptolemus, son of Achilles, his ancestor. Alexander's most important act in Troy was to visit the honored sites of Achilles, his ancestor through his mother's side and his hero idol. Both he and Hephaestion, his best friend, laid garlands of wreaths on the graves of Achilles and Patroclus, respectively. As Alexander overlooked the ruins of the city of legend, he must have felt immense pride. He had retained control of his kingdom under both rebellion and political intrigue. He made his way across his first steps into Asia. At the site of Troy, the city conquered by his legendary ancestors, Alexander could now finally realize his dream. He would surpass the deeds of Achilles, take his place as the greatest of heroes. For now, though, Alexander would have to keep his army together, as the forces of the great king were gathering to stop him, and soon, the conquest of Asia would begin. I thank you all for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to me on iTunes and leaving a review, or you can follow me on SoundCloud. I now have a Twitter too, at HellenisticPOD, so you can follow me for the new release of episodes, or you can just hear my random rambles. But until next time, I look forward to being with you all again as we continue with the Hellenistic Age podcast.